Jesus, we just thank you for this day. We just thank you for the hearts that are here in this room and that you've placed within our well community, God, that they would just be so willing to open up their hearts, God, to their neighbors and just serve you fully, Lord, um, whether it be through children's ministry or painting a wall or putting together a pumpkin event, um, just whatever it is, God, that all those needs are just being filled over and over, Lord. And just pray that um, you would be present with us in this service, God, and that you would just be with Joseph as he delivers the message and just help us to have hearts and ears that are open, um, open to you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. I was, uh, I was talking with somebody the other day about how there is actually a, um, that, that there was a, that different groups, like the Barna group is a group you always hear about when you talk about church study kind of stuff, but um, different studies have been done on kind of different trends that are going on within the Christian church, especially when it comes to churches that are growing uh, and that are changing or evolving uh, versus ones that are either kind of stagnating or in decline. Um, and it's it's interesting because, I mean, it's we, we've kind of hit a point where, with a lot of churches where... Um, you know, if you're simply not actively declining, then people say, we're doing good, we're running strong. You know, but stagnation is another aspect of that. And what they were talking about are that, you know, there are certain trends that you see within churches that, um, you know, are actually growing and not necessarily, I mean, yes, sometimes that comes along with growing as an organization, but a lot of times just growing in terms of, uh, you know, actually making grounds and reaching new people or different people. You know, it might mean growing in size, it might mean remaining the same in size and just kind of expanding how much work you're doing, how much activity you're doing. Um, but one of these things that I found was interesting was it was talking about the rise of how many churches kind of like ours are popping up where there isn't kind of the traditional set of roles and standards out there and specifically talking about pastors and saying that you know kind of this growing number of churches out there that have these bivocational pastors and one of the things that's kind of listed I mean you know there's all kinds of things you could put in there as far as things that are drawbacks of that I mean if you don't have a full-time amount of attention to dedicate towards something you know kind of a 50 60 hours a week that you can turn around and say like I'm gonna put all of this into this head pastor position then yeah certainly there's an amount of you know, just simply being available for people um, aspect that you kind of miss there but what you gain out of that is something very interesting because since that means your pastor now has to be kind of like in the real world, so to speak, they're not just kind of in the monastery all the time. It means that a lot of times uh, what ends up coming across is, you know, Bible lessons that we maybe have heard time and time and time again, but maybe all of a sudden it doesn't sound so Sunday school-like. It starts sounding a little bit more practical because it's applied to the same types of things that all the rest of us deal with. You know, it's it's in your workplace. It's out there with your friends. You know, it's not just kind of inside of church. So I was sitting here having this conversation, and one of the things I thought of was this, um, was a, a, a weird way that I was able to apply a uh, lesson from kind of my my day job to something I was doing with my you know pastoral job. Um, I was at a war game that for the people from my command I was kind of running a, a piece of it. So we were sitting out and we had some people out in Fairbanks and some people out in Anchorage and we had some people kind of out in the middle of the water. Um, and as we're running this, it's funny because my group's piece of this was basically doing a bunch of the 
kind of big brain modeling and simulation stuff that kind of helped some of the uh, war fighters out there with the Pacific Fleet to figure out like if the way they wanted to do things would really work in the real world, you know, because when we go out and we do a war game, um, it it might shock you to learn that when I turn around and I have a U.S. destroyer that's a bad guy and a U.S. destroyer that's a good guy and they're playing a game, we don't actually launch on each other. Um, you know, that's all simulated. So that's kind of a piece we were helping them out with was, you know, oh, well, this is what would probably, you know, this would happen in these circumstances and all that. And preferably before you move these big $2 billion warships in the water, certain areas, you want to have some idea that what you're going to do is actually going to work. So this guy would turn around and ask me and he would say like, hey, so if I want to sit here and push my aircraft out like this, is that going to actually, uh, is this going to actually work or are we going to get swatted? And, um, it was it was interesting because uh, I, I would look at them and I would do a very typical engineer thing. Where I'd say, well, I mean that depends, sir. Uh, I mean if you do that and then the conditions are right and you have this kind of ducting situation and and uh, you know then if the other guys are able to see you this much and you're emitting these things and all that and he kind of stopped me halfway through because this guy's an old Tomcat fighter pilot and he kind of stops me and he says. What is it about you guys that are engineers that you can't just give me a straight answer? You can't just give me a yes or a no. Like, I understand things are nuanced, okay? I understand that much. When I'm asking you a question, I want you to give me the judgment call of yes or no. If I want the explanation, I know there's an explanation behind it, but I will ask you for the explanation. And so I went, okay, got it, got it. You know, I got to the end of it. Um, so like 30 minutes later, he turned around and was like, well, what if I, instead of these aircraft, I want to put these aircraft out there? I went, well, and he kind of stopped and looked at me. And I went, yes, but if you give me five minutes, I can tell you why it's a no. And he said, got it, it's a yes. I'll come back to you if I need to know what the no is. And, that, and that's what he said. Um, now, the only amount of uh, uh, retribution I guess I got out of that was the fact that shortly after that, one of my colleagues comes in who is a uh, big Navy SEAL and ended up getting out of the Navy when he was uh, going, after, going after Geronimo. And um, when he came in, uh, I guess we had successfully infected him with this disease because he's like a Navy SEAL, right? So Tomcat pilot looks at him and says, like, hey, so-and-so, uh, so, you know, what's going to happen when we, when we turn around and uh, deploy these, uh, other, these other ships out there? And he goes, like, well, what's gonna, he's from, like, the foothills of Kentucky. He's like, well, I guess if we do that, then, you know, what we got to think about is blah, 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 blah. And he looks at me and he says, I swear to God, you get to everybody in, like, five seconds and just infect them with this thing. You can't give me a straight answer. Um, but where this seemed to apply to something in a kind of an odd way is it's in that idea of feeling like you have to explain everything and you have to get all the facts and all the details out there because sometimes to be honest it's not that we're suppressing truth or anything but sometimes all of the context bluntly isn't necessary sometimes what's necessary is to go yes or what I find in some of the things I end up having to do in kind of like the pastoral role is sometimes what's more important is to go you're right I'm wrong sometimes it's necessary and this is something that I kind of saw, you know, a couple of times, a couple of times now I've had to do um, some form of marriage counseling. And in doing that, what's interesting is, you know, I find myself, no matter who I'm talking, and even when I've been doing other forms of counseling that are marriage counseling, um, how many times something will pop up where I'll end up kind of using this litmus test with them. And I'll say, well, let, let me just ask this, because this, this kind of illuminates a lot of stuff. Can you think of the last time that you apologized for something and it was an unconditional, uncaveated apology? 
And I don't mean that there wasn't other things you could have said. It could have been that the reality is that why this thing happened is because of this and because of this and because of this. And there was a you know, rational reason mistakes were made. But yes, we need to cover all this. But have you ever had that moment where you've just said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And it might mean that there are some other things that are going on and that's fine, but who are you trying to prove that to? I mean, you know, so often when these situations show up, that other person knows. They know They know that, yes, there's all these other things and all that, but this is where we start getting into this important subject of pride. And pride can come in a lot of different forms. And so sometimes it's something that we're used to looking at pride as kind of the, the Gaston, right? We're used to thinking of the guy who comes out, and, and I would sit here and try to remember the words of the song, but I don't want to, and Phoebe hasn't asked to watch the movie yet, so... I'm not going to try to remember them. Um, but, you know, you think about that that loud, boisterous guy coming in, just somehow, you know, how awesome he is and, you know, strong he is and all that kind of stuff. And we think about that. But pride can take on many different forms. Um, psychologists have actually taken this. This is kind of an old standard. So it's been around for a while. But they'll take pride and they'll put it in two different um Categories. So when I say categories, I don't want to say there's only two ways you can be prideful. But the, the behaviors fall in these two categories. There's what's called authentic pride, and there's what's called hubristic pride. So there you go. You've learned something smart for today. Go forth and conquer. Um, but as we go through and look at this, some of the different behaviors that we see is that when you talk about authentic pride, you're starting to talk about a sense of pride that may be more related to like self-esteem. That's not necessarily inherently a bad thing. The idea of having a sense of pride where... You just have a strong sense of self-esteem and maybe what your capabilities are. You know, that, that's one of those things that it's, it's kind of interesting, especially when we start doing things in like a military sense. There's a huge, huge difference between saying, no, I understand what my capability is and I just have a lot of confidence that I know this is what my capability is. So there's a sense of pride that goes along with that. And that's very different than saying, I'm afraid of what I might not be capable of doing, so I'm going to put on this strong face. So see, it's two very different things that lead you down different paths. Um, there is this sense of, uh, you know, inauthentic it, it, uh, in pride of having like, a, like an extroversion, you know. So when we talk about being the, the outgoing type of person, generally speaking, this sense of authentic pride um, is something that's actually loud and boisterous. Again, that's something that can be good or bad depending on what you apply it to. Um, there's usually a sense of agreeableness to this. If you're truly proud of something in which you're secure about it, it's founded in a sense of self-esteem, then, you know, generally speaking, you're not going to have a problem agreeing with somebody else because you're going to go, yeah, no, I, I, know what I'm, I know what I'm capable of and I know what I'm not capable of and, and I'm fine with that. So, uh, you know, there's going to be an amount of I, I can agree if you say that I'm, you know, here's the limitations of what I'm capable of doing, you know, um, which is different than that hubristic side of things. Once we get over there, we start seeing a lot more of the negative traits we talk about. Um, this is where you start seeing, you know, kind of the, the word narcissism. Um, this idea of being shame proneness, so not wanting to fess up to something, not necessarily because you're afraid of any kind of consequences or anything, but because there is a sense of shame about maybe I am wrong. Like, I don't want to say I'm wrong, so uh, because if I say that, maybe, maybe deep down I think maybe I am. And I'm guilty about that. I feel guilty. I feel shame about that. This is part of that hubristic pride. Um, 
There is, uh, there, there's a lot of other things that can be kind of neutral. Uh, you know, hubristic pride can either be, you know, kind of outgoing or it can be reserved. You know, I was just talking about that Gaston example. And I think sometimes, you know, another phrase that I've used with Meredith many times is that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how many times people can actually be what I call like accidentally selfish. You know, maybe that's not their primary intent, but they just don't kind of think about things. Well, I think in the same way, people can be kind of, uh, quietly prideful, you know, so and a lot of it goes to some of that stuff we were just talking about, that idea of, you know, I'm not going to be loud and boisterous, I'm not going to waltz into the room and say, I'm so awesome, but if there's an opportunity for me to say, I have limitations, I don't want to say it, because what if it's true, and I can't deal with that. So that being said, I mean, what, what we're kind of digging into here is that pride isn't a singular thing. It's not a stereotype. It's not that Disney character, Disney villain. It's not necessarily something that you can just kind of paint with one brush. All of us, no matter what our personality type is, no matter what our background is, all of us can struggle with this sense of pride. Generally speaking, I think culturally it's a little bit easier to point it out when it is loud. This is something I've become acquainted with. But... It, it's not necessarily limited to just people who are type A personality, loud and outgoing. So it kind of leads us to the question then of what does the Bible tell us about when pride becomes an actual problem? Because there are places in the Bible where it talks about pride not in a negative light. Um, so let's just look at a couple examples of these. Uh, Psalms 20, verse 7. Uh, some of these will go quickly if you're trying to look ahead. We're going to be in Psalms, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians. Um, but in Psalms 20, verse 7, we read this. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. This is kind of interesting because right there you have an example of something where David himself is sitting here saying there is a sense of pride that is good, but it's this sense of pride in what our Lord is doing. It's this sense of pride in what God has accomplished and the blessings that he has given out, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God has done. And you can tell that that's the, that that's the meaning here just because when you look uh, at the idea of talking about you know pride and chariots and horses, this is clearly something that is a man-made pride. So there's you know something that is a a the works of God that we can be prideful of, and then there's the works of man that we can be prideful of. Uh, going back to kind of the, the 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 military allegory here and everything. I mean, keep in mind the, the day and age in which David is living is kind of this kind of on the tail end of the Bronze Age, kind of around the Bronze Age collapse. And during that point in time, you do see a lot of examples of chariots in archaeology, and it's because a chariot was considered like an aircraft carrier. And when I say that, I don't mean like big, massive guns, blah, 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 blah. It was a prestige project. It was something you did, and honestly, whether it made military sense to employ them or not, you employed them because it showed your prestige. It showed how powerful you were. So a lot of people, ironically, over the course of the ancient world would actually find themselves in situations where they would employ their chariots, their prestige project, just to end up being smashed by the enemy because it didn't actually make the most sense. But it was their pride. It was their hubris that caused them to actually employ it. So there's a difference in taking this hubristic type of pride in what we have been able to do versus this authentic pride in the fact that you know we understand what our Lord has done. It is focused on the works of the Lord rather 
rather the works ourselves. Going to 2 Corinthians, we can also see uh, a sense of pride in uh, the type of work people do. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. And there are many times Paul says this. This is just one example. I am very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. So there's a sense of pride in the actual works of what uh, other individuals are doing. Where uh, this is where you can start seeing kind of an example of, you know, I'm, I'm proud in what my kids are doing. Well, is that sinful? Is that really bad to sit here and say my kids did something and I'm very proud that they were able to do that? I think about the story I heard one time of a... Uh, of, of a missionary that was, um, and this this was kind of in the 19th century, a missionary who ended up uh, was was marrying a woman, and when he was marrying this woman, uh, this was kind of you know again o- over a century ago, so so the way people did things was a little different, and in that moment uh, he was talking to the father when he was asking permission to marry the daughter, and said, "I'm going to take your daughter to." places that are far away. I'm going to put her in danger's way. It's not going to be an easy life, and there are much easier lives that she could have than this one, but it's going to be a life where we follow the Lord. And the father was was willing to to go along with that and gave his blessing and was, in fact, you know, there there's some, some kind of subsequent quotes and journals and whatnot from the story that talk about kind of the sense of pride that goes along with that. That even though there is something that may seem by by human standards, by worldly standards as being not necessarily a proud moment, it's something that we can be proud and somebody else taking this very selfless act of doing these things that are virtuous and moral. So that's a sense of pride that isn't necessarily bad. So what about what about self-pride? Self-pride, like pride focused, you know, on something about your own individual being. Surely that must be bad, right? If I sit here and say I'm proud about something I did. Well, again, that's not quite what we end up seeing in Galatians 6, verses 4 through 5. We end up saying, let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Right here, remember when we were talking about that sense of authentic pride and talking about self-esteem? There is a certain thing about understanding the bounds of your own capability. And when I say that, the, the, the things that you have uh, that, that you have been enabled to, to do, you know, what the talents are that God has given you, um, the opportunities God has given you to train up, to be able to, to be able to do things, to be able to conduct certain kinds of work that is not necessarily inherently in and of itself bad. But the key word there is inherently. Because as with anything, pride can be a slippery slope. Because when you turn around and say, I have a sense of pride in the fact that, you know, God has given me a field over here to work. And I'm looking at the field, and the field is worked. I'm proud of the fact that that work is done. That's not inherently a bad pride. Where it starts becoming bad is where we start using it to elevate ourselves, to say, look at the work that I did in that field, and look at how much better it looks than my neighbor's field. That's where it starts turning. That's where it starts turning into a hubristic type of pride. And even as you're kind of going through this and listening to this, I mean, it might be something that you kind of hear it at first and go like, well, wait a minute, Pastor. That, that sounds a little off that, that we could have a sense of pride. But no, I mean, the problem is not the pride in and of itself. And this is true of so many different things we read about that are sinful of the Bible, is that so often many of the, the actual explicit actions or feelings are not in and of themselves bad. It's where it causes us to position ourselves relative 
relative to other people God has placed in our lives and where it causes us to put ourselves relative to God himself. This is actually something that, you know, you can see kind of born out in the scriptures whenever pride is talked about in a negative light. You can see that where things start becoming bad, to use an expression where the worm starts to turn, is when you use your sense of pride in order to say, I'm somehow better than my peer. I'm somehow better than somebody else. And it's bad because it's really undeserved. Even the way I was describing it, I'm going to be very, very careful about the words I use to describe the sense of self-pride to say, look at what God has enabled me to do. Look at the blessings that God has placed in my life and how I have... I have followed through with those opportunities, and that's the field that's been worked. It's not because I went out and got the field. It's not because I somehow innately have the strength to go work the field. It's because God blessed, I heard a calling, and I did. And I can be proud in the work that I did. This is something that you can kind of see in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. So starting in verse 6. We end up reading this. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? What you can see right here is Paul describing exactly what we're talking about here, that, that if there's something that we have, whether it is a talent, whether it is an opportunity to do something great, it, we don't have those things because somehow we were just born a better stock. We have these things because God blessed us and placed us in a situation to be able to do certain things. If God you know, turned around and gave us a, a conviction and the mental discipline and the physical conditioning and all that to sit here and say, you know what, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be an individual that's going to get really, really, really into fitness and running. Then you know what? Well, the reality is like you didn't just create those genes from the dust of the earth, you know, uh, you didn't necessarily create all the opportunities or, you know, like will the people in your life to be able to, you know, have some kind of group. And yes, I am directly picking on you uh, because I'm very convicted about not running. <laughs> But whatever it is we think we're good at, we're not good at these things because somehow we willed it. We're good at these things, if we are even good at these things, because God has allowed it to be so. Because God has given us some kind of capability. But just as God has given it away, do you not think that God hasn't given just as great blessings and opportunities to other individuals? And so we have to be careful to look at things and say, Nothing that I have pride in, I have pride in because of myself. I have pride in it because of the Lord. And in that, I can't, I must be forbade from using that to somehow elevate myself over somebody else. Because we don't know the blessings that God has given to those individuals. We don't know the calling God has given to those individuals. Or we don't know the, the people that God has surrounded them with or, or anything else really about their lives that God is actively doing there. So who are we to elevate ourselves above somebody else? This is actually something that you can maybe even kind of logically understand why God would be so concerned about people latching onto their pride and carrying it with them. Because if you think about that, doesn't that in a sense kind of usurp a role that's only occupied by God? If all of us are equally sinful, if we are all individuals who are equally flawed, 
compared to the perfection and the infinite power and grace and mercy and love and everything that we know God is, we are all equal because we're all equally deserving of death. We are all equal. And if anybody is not on that equal playing field, then surely they must have somehow divined themselves as higher. They must have something about them that is, that is somehow, dare I say, godly. This is actually something you can kind of see in the story of the Garden of Eden when you see how the serpent actually tempted Eve. It wasn't just simply going up and saying, hey, juicy apple, go eat juicy apple. Because when the serpent said that, what we see in there is that Eve appropriately turned around and said, oh, God said that we should not eat from that tree over there. It was only when the serpent turned around and said, that's not true. Because you might become like God you might have the knowledge and then you might be like God and that's where the fall of mankind comes from and in the same way our pride can do the exact same thing where we end up saying in the words of Solomon that we started this series out with that you know Solomon talks himself about saying what more is there a man for for a man to do than to eat drink and enjoy his toil awesome verse because it says it's okay to enjoy some of these things. Some of these things that if you kind of take the very, like, you know, European-centric monks and monasteries model of things, you'd say, no, 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 no. Surely, you know, we, you shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be happy. Shouldn't enjoy things. Shouldn't be prideful about anything. But you look at it and say, no, there's plenty of times when people enjoy things. Go enjoy it. Jesus, a lot of the events in Jesus' own life happen at parties. You know, uh, you know, go and, and, and if you're capable of working, then do good work. And take pride in the fact that God has given you that calling and that good work to do. But do not usurp the role of God by somehow divining yourself as being higher than your peer because you're not. Just as God has given, he can so easily also take away. I was reading, and this is a little bit kind of kind of on a tangent here, but I was I was reading through some some different examples of just where uh, individuals ride, or where there are examples of people kind of taking on that mantle that's undeserved, that kind of godly mantle. And I ended up coming to this place in James, and this talks specifically about judging other individuals, and and always whenever we talk about judging, I always have to pause and say, okay, keep in mind there's a difference between judging somebody, you know, according to their actions or their capabilities versus judging somebody according to the law that we're supposed to follow versus judging somebody who is not a Christian versus is a Christian. There's an entire sermon series built into that alone, but what I want you to focus on is this role of usurping a a, a position, a, a role that is really supposed to be reserved by God. In James 4, verses 11 through 12, we see this. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so you can see right there this idea of how uh, not great it is when we take upon ourselves roles that are really deserving to God and to God alone. This is why you can see the subject of pride become something that's so distasteful to God. When I was sitting here doing the... Um, Research kind of the sermon series and like looking up a, a, a lot of different um, you know scriptures and stories and everything about pride. First of all, it's a long list because pride pops up time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. But so often, one of the things I picked up on is that whenever there's something that comes from a prophet or comes from God, where he talks about saying this is a town, this is a city that 
I am going to cast my judgment against. It is interesting how often, way more often than not, uh, pride is specifically mentioned as an example. I mean, you actually have, and I was going to put this, it's going to put this in here, but it'd require a lot of uh, um, explanation, and everything. But the story of the Tower of Babel itself. I mean, that really becomes a perfect example of that, where man, not because God has blessed them with a capability to do something, but because they say unto ourselves, let us create this tower. And when you see kind of the, the interchange that, that occurs, that, that, that's the, the, the thought process of God in that story, what you end up seeing is God looking at this and saying, if they are able to do this, then there won't be anything that they feel like they can't do on their own. So right there, you have that sense of saying it's the, the problem is the pride that's causing the people to elevate themselves to a point that is undeserved, to a point that's not based on what God has done in their lives through His goodness and through His mercy and His generosity, but what they did themselves because, oh, they're just very smart people. They're just very good workers. Just look at how wonderful of society that they have. That's where it becomes bad. One example I did pull out that re relates to exa that exact same thing, theme is what we see in Judges 7. And what you end up seeing here is the, the story of Gideon. And so starting in Judges 7 verse 1, it says, uh, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all of his troops who were with him got up early and camped out uh, beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said it, which by the way, the valley of Morah is also where Armageddon is, just a bit. Uh, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over to me and say, I saved myself. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful, trembling, may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Now, I won't read the following verses, but what you end up seeing in verses 4 through 8 is that even with 10,000 troops, God says, you still have too many. You have far too many people here, and so we need to limit them down more. So he basically tells them to go to a river and says, drink out of the river, and whoever drinks uh, by, by lapping water up like a dog, they can stay. Everybody else has to go, and you end up with just 300 left over. And when you read this, it's something that because the, the not all the numbers are in this piece, maybe the impact somehow is lost in here. But while we don't know exactly how many people are in the Midianite army, there's a lot of different estimates and whatnot about that. Uh, one such estimate I saw that seemed to be kind of like a, 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 an appropriate middle ground was somewhere around 400 and some thousand troops. So you had 400, so, so you know, we'll, we'll, call it, we'll call it half a million, right? Because some of the estimates were really super high. So we'll, we'll call it half a million. So you have half a million troops out there. Half a million troops against this camp that Gideon had that was a hundred and something. So they were already down a significant number to their enemy. It was already going to be something that if they came out of that battle with a victory, it was going to be the thing of legends. It was going to be the thing that people would write about for the entire history of this nation. But yet God looked at them and said, you have too many and I don't want you to be able to say you did it because you were just strong. The underdogs fought through. Look at what we were able to do because of our strong stock and because of you know our military prowess. I want you to understand the only reason 
reason why you have this blessing of a nation that I have given to you, that I prophesied about, that I, I, I communicated through the patriarchs and through the prophets, and that I made covenants about. You only have this because I have given it to you, not because of anything you did. And so he had him cut it down to 10,000, and then that was still too much to make it only 300 against this army of almost half a million troops. There's a phenomenal thing where at that point in time, surely nobody could argue that there was any road to victory absent of the divine intervention of God. And that's exactly what God was after. He was after being able to say, I want you to understand, you only have those skills because I gave it to you. So... Why does God care so much about this? I mean, it's clearly a big deal, but, I, you know, and when I say why does God care about it, I think it's easy and almost kind of lazy sometimes to say, well, because God's God and we're not supposed to be God, and, and that's kind of the end of it. And, yes, that is true. That's not an untrue statement. But I sincerely believe that the Bible is an immensely practical book, that God gave us what we needed to know because this is, tells us how the world works. It, it, it melds with how our minds work. So God has, has kind of ordained through the word that, that has survived to this day. These are the things I want you to understand. It's more than just do this because I say to do this and don't do this because I say don't to do this. Don't do this. There, there is something that it does have a very tangible impact on our lives. So what is it about pride that becomes something that robs us? Is it simply just an ego trip of God? Well, let me take 30 seconds to pose this to you. If it was an ego trip of God, would that be so wrong? I mean, think about it. If God is all about himself, isn't that appropriate? If God is the pinnacle of all things that are good and all things that are powerful and all things that are perfect and have a plan, then doesn't it make sense that God would be infinitely focused on his own glory? It's a high theological thing, and we'll put that on the shelf for some time later. But it wouldn't be inappropriate if that were it in the end of the conversation. But for pride, there is something that is very practical. And sometimes I think these practical applications help us to be able to put this into practice. To say, I need to humble myself. To not be all about my own capabilities, whether I'm loud, whether I'm quiet, whether I'm accomplished or unaccomplished or whatever it is. So what is it? What is it that's so important about pride that we need to be concerned about it? Well, there's two really big points. One of them I think is kind of obvious, um, but obvious points beg repeating sometimes. And one of them is kind of challenging. So we go to Luke 14. And if you are going through your Bible, this will be the last thing that we're in. It's kind of Luke 14 here. And there's this, this, this instance we see of Jesus, and he's kind of observing how people are acting at, at, at a party. So surely you guys have heard, uh, at the very least, bits and pieces of this story before. And you can probably pull out what the easy point is. So let's go ahead and look in this and see what these two big points are about pride that are practical in our daily lives. Starting in verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they, would how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say, give your place to this man and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. 
You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The simple point here is that when we sit here and place ourselves on a pedestal that we don't belong on, then, oh boy, can God smack us off that pedestal. Can he humble us so quickly to say, you're not capable of doing this because you're somehow awesome. And maybe maybe something happens in your life that reminds you of that. Maybe, maybe physically we're absolutely awesome in something jumps in the way and it, it stops us in our tracks where, where we can't do that thing we used to find meaning in. Maybe it's that we find ourselves, you know, like a very academic, intelligent human being and then we find ourselves down the road in a situation of, of, of either decline or where we're afflicted with something. Maybe we sit here and think, I'm awesome at my job. And then yet due to other forces, we end up facing you know, factors bigger than ourselves and we're, we're downsized or you know, we, we run afoul of the wrong individual, something like that. We can be humbled in so many different ways. And whether somebody their entire life is able to kind of get through and get without being outwardly humbled or not we all know that ultimately an individual who goes their entire life and is not humbled is thinking uh, uh, only about their their own reputation only about their their own abilities and about what they can accomplish one day they're going to have to reckon with the judge that james was talking about and in that moment we're going to they're going to realize that all of their capabilities were for naught because they were no better than any other individual that god created on this earth don't elevate yourself higher than what God has placed you at. If you put yourself on that pedestal, then the reality is that there's only one place to go. It's all the way down at the bottom. But if you're at the bottom, then there's only one way God can pull you and that's up. That's actually the first big point here. The first big point here is that when we sit here and we live our lives based on pride, we actually end up denying ourselves blessings. That's actually what ends up happening. It's almost like what we're trying to do is because we're trying to take on a capability unto ourselves or a position unto ourselves that's not deserved, what we're really doing is we're trying to kind of will blessings into our lives. We're trying to create our own blessings. And that, that's just not how it works. And so what ends up happening is we end up not seeing the fact that God is actively working in our lives. If I sit here and think... Let's just say, for example, that I, I am fashioning myself as, you know, a very arrogant, self-centered, uh, uh, you know, overly ambitious pastor. We'll call myself um, Bull Jolstein, for example, okay? So um, when I am, Joel, if you're watching, weird, but if not, I'm joking. Um, but... You know, and, and if I'm sitting here doing all this stuff and, and then all of a sudden God works through the church and the church grows and, you know, we have, uh, you know, outreach and we see individuals who are making decisions and coming to Christ and all that. Think of how robbed you are of the blessing of knowing that that is the work of God doing all of that. Because you fool yourself into thinking it's all you and it's all the efforts that you've done. But in reality, nothing could be further than the truth. It's everything that God has done. And because you're blinded to it from your pride, your faith doesn't reap the blessing of being able to say, you know what, now when I run through that period where things aren't going as awesome, I don't have that faith to fall back on because I robbed myself of the blessing when God was giving me the blessings. 
in so many different ways, pride becomes the, 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 this, this blindfold that we wrap around ourselves to sit here and say, I don't need eyes. I can just go on my own. And if the body is able to continue moving on its own and it avoids an obstacle, then the body can look at itself and say, I didn't need my eyes. I was able to do it. And look how awesome that was instead of looking and realizing how close they were to the edge of destruction and saying, man, I sure am glad that my eyes were able to get myself through. This is why in our own lives we have to be willing to keep our eyes open to the way that God is acting in our lives and with those eyes understand that it is but the grace of God that keeps us from the knife's edge of destruction. There is a more challenging aspect though of, of this, this aspect of why keeping pride of our life is so important. As we continue reading in verse 12 we see this. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be, uh, and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." I think the more challenging aspect of this is that if our sense of humility is dependent on the other person being humble back, that's not humility. That's just, that's just in a personal relationship at that point. It's transactional at that point. And if our humility is nothing more than transactional, it's not really true humility because it, it's anticipating some sort, of, some sort of, of payback, some sort of you know, something coming back to you. You know, you sit here and make somebody else feel good and they make you feel good and that's how we end up being really good buddies, you know. But the reality is that that's a very inauthentic form of humility. True humility is something that doesn't ask anything back. It's something that doesn't ask and insist that all the conditions be rolled into the apology. It's something that causes us to look at another individual and say, I'm willing to say that other individual is not below me and not for any reason I've seen. I don't need to, for them to prove that they're not below me. I don't need for them to prove that they're as good or a better person than me. I simply know that I am called to be less. And because I'm called to be less, that's what I'm going to do. And even though God may bless me with skills and with talents and with opportunities, and with, with means, uh, uh, physical possessions, and all of these things, I understand that all of these things I have because in a very real sense, I'm simply a slave to my Lord and in a second that overseer could take all of that back from me and I would be even worse off than this other individual true humility is not going to the people that it's easy to be humble with and being humble true humility is going up to individuals that the world that society and that even your own DNA wants to look at them and say you're a lesser person and then yet you go the other way and you acknowledge the fact that, now if anything, I'm the lesser person. Because I'll submit this to you. If you have another individual that you feel may not have a relationship with Christ, or may not have a stronger relationship with Christ, then through their ignorance, they may not understand how destitute they truly are. But if we know better, if we would like to pride ourselves on being these good, proper Christians, 
then we understand what Christ did for us. We understand how destitute we truly are. And if that's the case, then in a very real sense, we are no better than that other individual. We are no better than that junkie or that person who doesn't have a a home or that person who has whatever personality quirks that we can't stand. We're no better than they are. If you want to know a true test of humility then I would say look at whether you are willing to do something for somebody else that every fiber in your being says you shouldn't do anything for them. Are you willing to sit here and reach out to that person and do something for them who put themselves in that spot? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to uh, you know, go out and show compassion and charity to somebody or some group or whatever Knowing full well that in your head everything your brain is screaming at you is, you know what, they're, they're, prob- they're probably just going to go go squander it. They're going to go waste it away. It's looking at an individual that we say, everything in the world tells me that this individual is less than me, and then saying, I'm going to push all of that aside, and I'm going to treat them as better than me. That's what it means to be truly humble. So the end of the matter is this. The reason why pride is such a big deal to God is not pride in and of itself. Pride in our fellow believers. Pride in, in a sense of what God has done in this world and our lives throughout history is a good thing. You know, even pride in what it was that, that, that we did in our, in our diligence and our, in our, our, our attention to what God is calling us to do. These are not things that are inherently bad. Eat, drink, and enjoy your toil. But... Do not ever consider yourself better than your fellow man. Because God created all of us to be equally beautiful reflections of his nature. And we have all chosen to walk away. None of us are any better than the other. So if that's the case, then we must act as such. So the challenge I would, I would issue to you is this. If we are called to look at the rest of the world as being no better than us and to look at the individuals who are rejected by society and rejected by the world around us and not simply just kind of hole up in our churches and our groups, you know, in our little our little monasteries of the mind and instead are called to reach out to individuals that the world has said you are lesser and instead to look at them and say, no, you are greater, then what are we doing about it? Let's pray. Father God, we... We thank you every week for the opportunity to be able to praise you, to be able to learn about you, to be able to, to pray together and, and, and fellowship with one another with the body of Christ. But help us to understand that and, and to, to actually live out in our daily lives, whether as individuals or as a church or both, that there is a world out there and that that is truly the greater thing. That what we have inside the walls is by its nature lesser and everything outside, the hurting world, the broken world, the sinful world, is what is greater and what you have called us to do. Help us to check our pride and to be willing to be unconditional with our sense of humility, understanding that regardless of what fallible reasons we may have for the things we do or the things we say, that in reality we're all sinners, unconditionally, flat out. And God, with that realization, help us to be, help us to be humble in our actions and, and in our judgment to be able to move forward with our lives and with, with, with a sense of 
with a sense of pride not founded in ourselves or what we've done, but founded in you and what your son did on the cross. Help us to understand that anything good that is in us is only there because you, through your mercy and through your grace, have permitted it to exist. And for that, we unto ourselves truly exist at the foot of the table. God, help us to live out what it means to be humble in a way that isn't just what the world and what what society and social media would say is humble, but in a way that you would look at us one day in heaven and say, you truly lived in the humble way that I, that I wanted people to live. We pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.